VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, September the 5th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. We're looking forward to speaking with you this morning on a topic of your choosing. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 8626. So I know not everybody gets the Labor Day long weekend, but if you did indeed get it, I hope you enjoyed it, and welcome back to the program this morning. Let's get going. Friday night, I'm tuning in to watch some of the FIBA World Cup of Basketball. Canada playing Brazil, it was dismal. We looked awful. It looked like all hope was lost. All the want to qualify automatically for the Paris Olympics, oh no, we got to play Spain next. Down 12 points against the Spaniards in the fourth quarter, come back to beat them 88-85. Consequently, moving on to the quarterfinals to play Slovenia tomorrow, and yes, automatically qualified for the Paris Olympic Games. Some great stories on the team. One of the players for this edition of Team Canada is a guy named R.J. Barrett. When he was about five years old, his dad played in the last time that the Olympics, pardon me, Canada played in the Olympics, which was in Sydney, Australia, in 2000. So his dad's number nine is, of course, shadow box and hung proudly in the living room. And now R.J. Barrett, also wearing number nine, will get a chance to play for his country and shadow box his jersey alongside his dad. So Slovenia tomorrow. Some, some game against Spain. Anyway, great stuff. From the good news there to the bad news. We were talking last week about the fact that the Galway Hitmen were in Surrey, B.C. to try to defend their national championship. Went 9-2 and two in the tournament. Looked great. All the notable players were swinging their bats and chucking the ball. Looked like they had another real great chance to defend their national championship. Put up 11 runs in the semifinal. Go on to play the Toronto Batman. So it's the Hitmen against the Batman in the championship game. And lost one nothing in 15 innings. Heartbreaking defeat for the lads playing for the Galway Hitmen. But another good run, safe travels as you return back to the province. So it was good news, bad news, good news. Congratulations to the Cornerbrook Minor Baseball Association. They won the 18U AA Atlantic Championships in PEI this past weekend. Bravo. More good news. This is a real thrill for these two young people and their families. So 16-year-old Kelly Locke, Conception Bay South, and 17-year-old Simon Perry of Portugal Coast St. Phillips, they were out playing in the mixed curling championships. Didn't get off to the best kind of start, but in the seventh game, they won 3-1 to one to close down, to win the championship, claim the victory, and what? To qualify to participate in the Youth Olympics coming up in Korea in January. So you hear some of the interviews with the two, and congratulations to them. You know, talking about what it's going to feel like when they see their jersey for the first time, and their surname is right on top of the Canadian Maple Leaf, so off to the Youth Olympics. Absolutely amazing. A quick Olympic note on this date in history, 1960, Cassius Clay, of course, then changed his name to Muhammad Ali, beat the three-time European champion from Poland, guy named Petrozowski, uh, by unanimous points to win the Olympic light heavyweight business, pardon me, the light heavyweight boxing gold medal at the Rome Games in 60, Cassius Clay. And speaking of Korea, as we just did with the Youth Olympics, so while there's protests on the Port of Port Peninsula surrounding the World Energy GH2 project, and we can get into all these wind, hydrogen, to ammonia-related matters, but then there was an article in the Korea Times this past weekend. It's kind of clumsily written, but it pretty much says that World Energy GH2 is a go. You know, we spoke with Minister Parsons uh, last week on this program about what is yet to be satisfied and achieved before any of the four companies moving on to the next phase actually get the green light in full to proceed. 
but in the Korea Times because there's a uh, company named SK Ecoplant. They own a 20% stake in the first phase of the three phases of World Energy GH2's proposal for the Port Port Peninsula. So they're involved with front-end engineering design, supplying when installed the electrolyzers, electrolysis machines, I'll call them, <laughs> for the green hydrogen produc production. But in Korea, they've got this thing stamped. It's a go. So stark contrast to what we're actually talking about in this province, and certainly a stark contrast to what we're hearing from some people on the Port of Port Peninsula. No one ever really knows. The company says they've got wide, uh, widespread support. Some people in the area say the exact opposite. So some of the questions are pretty much about the environmental impact. And fair ball, absolutely. We have heard some questions about their business model, whether or not it's going to work, what happens if it doesn't. You know, just from where I sit, if we have all the sureties in hand so that decommissioning will be covered in full by the proponents, whether it be in exploits or uh, down the Bjorn Peninsula or in the Port of Port Peninsula, that would be my worries covered off insofar as whether or not their business model works. But some people are asking those questions. So if you want to talk about the proposal out at uh, Come By Chance, of course, Bray Renewable Fuels and or on the Bjorn Peninsula for Everwind, the Exploits Valley Renewable Energy Corporation, uh, production facility in Botwood, or yes, of course, World Energy GH2, we will take it on. And also, we have been in contact with Newfoundland Labrador Hydro. I think I saw their email float in as to our request to have CEO Jennifer Williams on the program soon, whenever that might be, to talk about one of the implications that we don't really fully understand yet is what any of these wind to hydrogen to ammonia projects would look like regarding interconnectivity with our grid. That's another big concern regardless of where you live in the province. And of course, if you live close by where these enormous towers are going to be erected, then your concerns might be different from someone sitting on a, in a studio on Kemal Road. But if you want to bring your perspective to the show... Let's go. All right, so my wife, the teacher, gone to school this morning. Summer break is over. She's looking forward to it. But, of course, all the staff will be back in the K-12 schools today. Students go back tomorrow. So always a lot on the list for questions and concerns and enthusiasm and or some consternation about returning to school. And I'll leave it up to you to talk about whatever is on your mind in K-12. I'm going to throw it out there again because I just can't get it out of my mind. You know, we know so many children in the province miss too much school. So when they constitute what equals chronic absenteeism, it's missing uh, a month or more of school. And a couple of years ago, when Jackie Lake Kavanaugh, then the child and youth advocate, uh, provided a report saying that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 10% of all the K-12 students are chronically absent from school. The staggering statistic in the inside of that is if you're chronically absent in grade 6, 75% of those students never graduate from high school. So I would hope, and it doesn't look like it's happening because we asked the most recent minister, or the current minister of education, Crystal Lynn Howell, about things like this. You know, what work is being done to understand why you're not in school? And what can be done about it? And to see what becomes of any of the chronically absent that don't end up graduating from high school and a variety of impacts in their life. So we don't know, but it's a big one in my personal opinion. Anyway, in school, it's not just the three R's. There's all sorts of issues regarding healthy choices, whether it be food, drink. I, I heard Jerry Lynn Mackey talking about the vapes, then so many young people are using the vapes, active lifestyle and drugs and alcohol and sex and self-respect and respect for others, all of those things. And in the healthy choices world, for some, this might not even be any concern, big deal. We're not talking about huge money. But it's one of those unpopular, out-of-nowhere policies that the government implemented just over one year ago regarding the sugar tax. 
We were told what was going to be exempt. Lo and behold, some of those products turned out not to be exempt. There's a professor at Memorial University in the Department of Nutrition and Dietics. She's an assistant professor of those disciplines, asking some pretty good questions. Her name is Rachel Proust. From the top line. So the government brought in 22% more money or revenue than they anticipated, so $11 million. Not huge monies, and we know where that money is going to be distributed. And once again, over the course of a year, not huge money. The problem there is that we really don't know what's meant for demand. And isn't that the be-all and end-all? Supposing it was 9 million, 11 million, 11.5, 12.5 million, isn't the whole issue engaging success of government policy as to whether or not it's impacted people's decision-making when they go to buy one of these drinks? We don't know. They say they're having a close look at the data, but the sales data should be fairly fundamentally compiled and shared. Here are some of the concerns brought forward by Professor Prowse, and they're good ones. Quick question. Does the tax actually increase the price of the beverage in the store? Does it actually change how people are purchasing different beverages? Does it change how people are consuming beverages? And at the end of the day, does it change sugar intake and diets? And here's why they're pretty insightful questions. So we go to shopping, and you look at the two-for-one deal, and sometimes that's not all it's uh, uh, cracked up to be. But here's the problem, so says Professor Prowse. I think she's right. So you look at the price tag on the shelf. It doesn't reflect the tax. So people don't, generally speaking, walk around the grocery store considering tax implications when they're buying whatever it is they're buying. And the only time you really see the impact of the tax is when you get the receipt. Now, that might feel like splitting a hair, but I think in our subconscious, we see the price. It's three nineteen. Okay. In the car, it goes. Then you go and get your receipt, and if you carefully scrutinize it, then you see the implication of the sugar tax. So that and that alone leads me to believe that probably haven't seen a massive impact on decision-making and the choices of what people are purchasing. But actually, I think David uh, sent uh, Dr. Prowse an email, and if she's willing to come on and talk about how her and her colleagues are going to evaluate the tax. Because, look... Government encouraging healthy lifestyle and healthy choices just makes all the sense in the world. You know, even when you bring in some of the moves they're making at the hospital, for instance, at the, here in the eastern region, it has the well-intended background, but sometimes it's ham-fisted. It might not be as easy as just saying, well, here's the healthy option and no other option beyond, because people can still bring in whatever they want. People are going to buy the full-bore Pepsi or versus Diet Pepsi if that's what their taste buds prefer. So I just wonder what the impact has been. You want to take it on? And they're going back to classes at Memorial University tomorrow. So lots there. It'd be interesting to get an update in the university search for a new president of the school. We all know the tumultuous tenure that was had by Dr. Vian Timmons, but that and anything else under the sun, including housing or anything else, let's go. Okay, so back in 2017, the province struck an all-party committee to look at mental health issues. And as a result, their recommendations were implemented in the eventual report called Towards Recovery. It's important for these all-party committees. Now, for some people, it'll simply be the optics of it. You know, so an all-party committee, okay, great. I think it's probably a good thing. It's probably long overdue. But we've seen the issues regarding mental health. And now as a result, last Friday, we were told that there will be another all-party committee, this time to look at addictions and substance abuse. 24 overdose deaths this year that we know of. A big load in July, some 11 in July, another three in August. This is a huge issue. 
it's not going away. And in fact, it's only getting worse. So good thing to have this all party committee. Will it bring forward the solutions or pardon me, the recommendations that can make it easier, better, safer for those who are consuming and potentially become addicted? But some of that conversation gets lost in that not everybody using the drug is addicted and will be in that particular death spiral. So, okay, good. Good thing, good step forward, not the last step. There are some people required who have lived experience. Whether it be people like Jeff Bourne, who's at the uh, U-Turn Addiction Drop-In Center. Whether it be Gerard Yetman of the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador. They will be part of it. The full makeup of the committee has not been finalized as of yet. But whether or not it impacts your family, your circle of friends, it has an impact on the community. And so, okay, let's get some of this work done because as we wait for committee members to be named, as we wait for their important work to take place over a fairly loose timeline of six months, every day that goes by, more and more people are struggling. More and more people will die because the bloody supply is toxic. So the all-party committee, good, you wanna take it on. Let's go. When we talk about mental health and addiction, what have you, I want to say good morning to my buddy Bill Guiney, who left Signal Hill on Friday for a 300-kilometer trek once again to raise money and awareness for mental health-related matters, collect personal stories for his book uh, that's going to be titled Push, which is apt given the fact that Mr. Guiney, of course, famous for his walk across the province, and every kilometer walked, he'd drop and do 10 push-ups. So good morning to you, Bill. Hopefully you're having a, a good stroll. He'll be back Signal Hill. I think the plan is to be here on Friday or thereabouts. All right, how are we doing on the telephone, David. All right. So the Privacy Commissioner, I have a lot of time for Michael Harvey, but a critically important piece of work that he's always entertaining at his office for, you know, the whole access to information, the transparency and accountability issues that he is responsible for. So looking once again at what goes on at the RNC, and apparently there's two distinct breaches, people the looky lose for no reason, and maybe a nefarious or malicious reason, looking at people's personal information and in the hands of the RNC. So they've been disciplined at work, it's made it through the courts and all the rest, but you know, when we hear it in health, and when we hear it at the RNC or wherever else, you know, it screams to me not only the layer of incompetence but betrayal look you're working for the public purse you're working for the public you know full well that my medical records or whatever the data that the rnc has belonged to me or anyone else listening to the program this morning is of no concern to you so what these malicious intentions might be who knows but they could be pretty bad you know imagine there's information in the hands of an organized criminal that would be putting someone in jeopardy or in peril. I don't know what they were doing with the information, but the fact of the matter is they shouldn't be looking at it first and last. So Michael Harvey's always welcome on the program. And speaking about betrayal, this is infuriating stuff. So we've had a look and there's been review of the people working for CRA and how many of them took advantage of the CERB. All right, there's been 60 people identified that were indeed receiving the CERB. Now, CRA will go on to tell you that just because you work for CRA doesn't mean you are technically ineligible because they have a lot of contract workers and the like, but come on. If you are working CRA, who was the department handling the CERB, if you are a contract worker, you were working. 
they had more volume going through that department than ever before because of these pandemic support programs. So people working for CRA, working for us, knowing they don't belong, putting their name forward to apply for CERB, but did it and knew they thought they'd get away with it. Thankfully, they've been caught. A bunch of people have been terminated. Apparently, some 20 have been terminated. And then there's the responsibility to repay to what have you. But again, it just speaks to that level of... I mean, I use the word betrayal, probably a little bit strong and harsh, but in, in essence, that's what it is, you know? There were Canadians who, some of it was pretty vaguely worded, and maybe got the SERP, and sometimes, maybe there be uh, uh, small business owners and what have you, they found out after the fact, as a self-employed person, maybe they weren't eligible, and then there were some folks, just like the CRA employees, who said, yeah, I'm going to see if I can sneak that through, a couple of thousand dollars a month, extra cash, yeah, but there you go. All right, I mentioned this on the VOC Morning Show with Ben Murphy and Jerry Lynn Mackey this morning. So some of this is spurred on by my own personal experience. So not only was it a white-knuckle drive into work this morning with the ground fog on the Outer Ring Road, and some of the concerns people are bringing forward about the distracted driving signs. Distracted driving is a huge issue. And then when you think about impact on your insurance, People think about tickets and they think about accidents and maybe drunk driving or distracted driving, anything like that. But one of the big surges in your auto insurance premiums may indeed be associated with theft. I opened up my renewal yesterday afternoon to see a massive increase in my premiums. So I guess I've got some time coming up this afternoon on the telephone with my provider to see exactly what's going on. Okay, here's some of the numbers we have seen on an insurance price aggregate website called rates.ca. Talking about the fact that for most car, for the car models that are most stolen, they've seen increase in premiums upwards of 50%. So there's some hot spots in the country. Thefts in Ontario rose nearly 50% between 2021 and 2022. Quebec over 50%, Alberta around 20%, and here in Atlanta, Canada, up nearly 35%. The industry lost about a billion dollars last year due to theft, and as a result, they're putting in a high-risk surcharge, maybe some $500, things that you can do to see that taken away, like getting a wheel lock or a tracking device that you can get from a company like Aviva, Gore Mutual, TD Insurance. Okay, so I assume that maybe, just maybe, some of my increased premium is because of theft. So there are things you can do, right? Now, locking your doors and all that. But the way they can steal the information from your key fob that you maybe put in a bowl or hang on a hook just inside your own door, maybe that's something we all have to stop doing. Because apparently they can mimic your key and consequently steal your vehicle. So here's the top 10 most stolen vehicles. These are the most recent numbers from the Insurance Bureau of Canada, but it dates back to 2021. No reason to believe it's changed dramatically. Number one, Honda CRV. Number two, Lexus RX series. Number three, the uber popular ford f-150 number four honda civic number five toyota highlander number six ram 1500 number seven the chevrolet gmc silverado sierra 1500 number eight honda accord number nine jeep grand cherokee and number 10 the toyota rav4 those are some pretty seriously popular vehicles on the road so if you see a whopping big increase but no change to your driver's abstract no accidents no drunk driving no distracted driving it might be due to theft I wonder just how prevalent it is in this neck of the woods, or is it just another convenient excuse on behalf of my provider? We'll find out this afternoon. We're on Twitter. We're at VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's have a great show to kick off the week that requires your call right after this. And welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Good morning, Thomas. You're on the air. Here we go. Good start. 
Hello, Patty. How are you I'm doing okay. today? I'm okay, Thomas. How you doing? Well, I can't complain. Anyway, but, listen here. I got to ask you a big question now. Well, as soon as I get to pin, how would I get hold to the... I'm talking about the railway. Okay. So I got I got uh, a lot of stuff that uh, belonged to my granddad and my grand and my, and my father, I mean to say, and I like to donate it to the railway museum. Well, you can just give them a call, I suppose. I'd also uh, put you in touch with the rooms because they'd be able to help navigate some sort of donation. But if you want to call the Railway Coastal Museum directly, it's pretty yeah, easy. I've got, got their number. Hold on now, and I'll get your pen, and I'll get your piece of paper. Okay. Daddy, well, i got one thing to say. I'll get up in the morning, and the first thing comes on is VOCM. I, we appreciate your support this morning uh, yeah. and every day, Thomas. You got okay. your pen and paper? Yep. Okay, five seven zero. Okay, five seven zero. Two one. Two one. Four three. Four three. And I really appreciate your time. Anytime, Thomas. Good luck with it. Hey, you too, buddy. Okay. You have a good day. Thanks, Thomas. You too. Okay, you okay. do. Bye. Bye-bye. Here we go. Yeah, there's still people that talk about the railway going away and what rail might look like sometime in the future. I don't think there's any appetite or money to put into a rail, a modern rail system, which is really unfortunate. Look at other parts of the country that are actually building high-speed rail, what that's going to mean for traffic and congestion and time and emissions. But here we are, no railway, modern-day Canada a province they're in. Uh, let's go. Line number one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I want to start with um, a shout-out to the different government departments that came together with the wind-hydrogen development, bid evaluations, and creating the different um, creating the different uh, rules and regulations and doing it on the fly. It, it just, to me, it's encouraging. It, you know, it shows when you can get that many different departments and agencies and boards all working together that there is hope for the province to, to tackle some of the other you know challenging uh, social issues that we all face and, and financial issues that we face yeah we'll see how quick it proceeds I you know the I think it was Charlie last week talking about what it actually looks like on the other end for the end consumer and what things like price points I don't even know how you sell that product you know the uh, ammonia after electrolysis it's probably by the ton I, I'm guessing so what that looks like and the willingness for the Germans to follow through with their end of the MOU and what other transition companies or products may indeed fill a void that might be today uh, part of the the appetite for these transition fuels i don't know but i'm not too worried as to whether or not they're going to make a long-term run at it it'd be nice because their long-term success if indeed all the i's are dotted and t's across we will share in their success in some form but there's still lots of big questions out there yet to be answered i think i was down in um Argentia a couple weeks ago and saw the monopiles it's, it's it's amazing you know because down in Argentia you see the West White Rose GBS, which is huge. And then you see these monopiles laid on their side, and it, they're massive, and that obviously is without any of the wind turbines or any of the other infrastructure. So, you know, it's hard to try and connect the dots because, you know, like it's easy to wrap your head around having a wind turbine producing electricity. That happens all over the place. But then when you try and visualize the amount of waste that goes into 
you know, cracking water into hydrogen and then converting it to ammonia, which is like 10 times as big an, a molecule and then putting in a ship and shipping it to Rotterdam or wherever and then putting it into storage tanks and then processing it back from ammonia back into hydrogen and then putting them in, into something. And, it, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredibly wasteful thing. Whenever I hear people talk about hydrogen being like the secret to running their cars, I, I, I don't think they really understand how much waste is involved in that process, how much energy it takes. When you could just take that energy and directly put it into something that, you know, that either drives your vehicle or turns a factory or whatever else. Well, I, I suppose some of this issue is also proximity, right? Wind generated on uh, the Port-au-Port Peninsula or in the Exploits region won't power anything except something close by unless it's, trans- it's uh, transferred into something, whether it be hydrogen, ammonia, or otherwise. So I, I get your point. But, of course, once again, is that a provincial concern or is that a business concern? You know what I mean? Because... I've got a lot of people telling me that their business model is something we should be heavily focused on. But I think environmental concerns, interconnectivity with the grid, the royalties and the value of crown land, those environmental impact, those seem to be the provincial concerns for me. But now if that's not uh, the opinion shared by folks who think the business model is the be all and end all, fair enough. But as long as they're 100% on the hook for a reclamation, then I'm, I'm kind of less concerned with how much money any of them make. Yeah, no, you you know you you kind of put that to Minister Parsons, and you know the the challenge is we all know. I mean, you know, you've got corporate welfare, and it's amazing. You hear these multinational, large companies getting, you know, I think Decor just got a one of the the iron mines up in in Labrador got a million dollars to do a study, and our Port of Agencia just got a bunch of money to to you know add wharf space. So you know the concern, which is legitimate, not to mention the facts, the tax credits, which although we're competing internationally with governments who are trying to, in particular Americans, trying to totally turn the, their economy inside out to try and embrace a greener, more circular, sustainable economy, which is admirable. You know, so, so it is, you know, from an international point of view, it gets really, really complicated, but there's no debate. We have a history in this province of, um, you know, and obviously Come By Chance is a perfect example. We just gave them a bunch of money to continue Brea, to continue renovating their, retrofitting the I mean, I think it's legitimate to, to say that if these things don't work, the hand will be put out, and and once you're so far down the line, it's it's difficult. But, but however, uh, the argument that the people that the people could gather around in a room, and I mean, the the, the taxpayers could gather around a room and actually make a rational decision on something this complex, you know, it's it's probably also not really realistic. So you know, at some point, we have to trust the people we pay. As long as they do it in a transparent way, and this seems this process, relatively speaking, seems fairly transparent. But you know, the not in my backyard issue is also huge too. And I understand not one if I lived in Port of Port, and I was gonna, or you know, wherever, and 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 I was gonna have to. My view was gonna drastically change, and I was concerned about the environmental impacts. I mean, it, these are very complex, uh, interconnected sort of projects that are massive. Like we can't even comprehend, you know, what that many turbines looks like on a peninsula so you know i'm glad i'm not the one making the decision but i do i do think the public deserve to be part of the process because ultimately it's our land and and i think i do think that some of these projects may not work out i mean you know that's probably not an unfair statement but but hopefully they all do and hopefully it turns out to be great i mean it's it is what it is i want to try and tie all that together to um 
some of the things we point as problems are probably symptoms and some of the things we look at that, and we don't think about the symptoms and and obviously we're rushing to do these projects because we're trying to find a way to have a sustainable economy and and when i when i look at the most up to date figures of uh, forest fires and and carbon emissions the the latest report is that we've had 40 um million acres of land which is over 1.8 trillion square feet of boreal forest burned and uh, <clears throat> to put it in perspective there's there's 26 billion square feet of homes so that's almost 7000 times of all the homes in Canada burned and then burned 7000 times more that would be how much boreal forest we lost this year and the amount of carbon that's been emitted by that burning forest is is over 1.5 times as much as we would emit in our vehicles and our industry and everything else. So the, the sobering thing of that is that that's a lot, and obviously it's had big impacts, but just the fact that we create that much carbon with our normal activities, and then the feedback loop of it all, that that the, the emissions that we're putting into the air is causing things like droughts and things. Anyway, I'm sorry. You want to say something? Well, I, 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 the subject line that I have in front of me, we haven't touched on yet, but I do have to go. Right. But do you want to say something about addictions? Okay, no. I mean, Dave misinterpreted me. What I was saying is that it, it, I can, I'll talk about addictions, sure. I was at that rally a couple weeks ago, and it was heartbreaking. And I was sitting there listening, and we've, had it, we've been touched by addictions very, very closely. And, uh, and, I was, and I'm trying to process you know what what ultimately is is leading to these addictions and uh, and of course it's all around us there's always been addictions so it's it's nothing new and, and but it seems like it's it's a symptom the the societal impact of people just being totally lost to their families and to the communities it's it, i look and i i'm trying to figure out how we deal with the fact that you know broken families and and just broken people and and just the kind of like the loss of the family unit and, and everything that comes along with it and, and people's connection. And at one point in the, um, minister, one of the ministers, Minister Hogan was speaking and, and people in the crowd were kind of heckling him and, and one of the guys said he had no empathy. And I was thinking like, from my point of view, I was sitting there thinking, well, you don't have any empathy because you don't realize how tough it is for him to be standing there as a, as a father and, and as a minister. And it's just kind of the loss of the loss of the whole community connection and and the blame game and and I just feel like we need to try and come together as a community and not focus on we obviously have to deal with the symptoms which as I see addictions is a symptom, but I think we need to move up like the thirty thousand feet as well simultaneously and be trying to deal with the broken society that's resulting in stuff like climate change and unhealthy living and, and addictions and these things. And I think as a community, we have the capacity to do that. But I would love to see that kind of all of the climate type of uh, all the, that they just did with the wind hydrogen development. I'd like to see us have something more like a high level throughout the community and, and throughout government and throughout uh, the not-for-profits and through families and maybe even hopefully like organized religion and, and, and different groups and, and try and tackle the, the bigger problems. I think this tearing the province apart 
piece by piece. That, that's kind of my thought for the day. Okay. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Tom. Take care, everyone. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Sarah Mills from Stella Circle talk about their adult basic education program, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to Sarah Mills, the Program Manager for Employment Services at Stella's Circle. Good morning, Sarah. Here on the air. Good morning. How are you today? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm not too bad. I'm excited now about the school year about to start, not just for um, the traditional school system, for but for our adult education class. We're about to start first day is tomorrow. If I remember correctly, back in sometime early in the summer, I think you celebrated your largest ever graduating class. We did. That's correct. We were so excited. We had seven graduates who have moved on to level two at one of the uh, other programs in the city. So we were really excited and we really celebrated those students in the summer. But that means that we have space available in our class going into this school year. So that's why I'm calling today to talk about the benefits of ABE and uh, hopefully to entice some folks to maybe take the chance or take the time now to uh, look at their own education. Absolutely. Just before we get into the spaces available this year, what do we know? And I'm certainly not to give away anybody's name or their lot in life, but what do we know about the seven people that came in? to your adult basic education program because off the top today I was talking about absenteeism in the K-12 system Mm -hmm. and if you're chronically absent in grade 6 75% of those folks will not graduate from high school so do we have a base understanding of who some of these people are like did they quit when they were 16 or do we know how they ended up needing ABE from Stella Circle because you know when we can identify who needs it maybe we can do better to nip it in the bud before they become the next potential client of yours. Absolutely. And what I would say is all of our students are very individual. So everybody comes with a different story or a different academic background. Um, Some folks experienced uh, mental illness or some mental health challenges while they were in the regular school system, which resulted in them having to leave. Uh, Some folks had undiagnosed learning disabilities or things like ADD or ADHD, which really resulted in them finding finding it very difficult in a traditional classroom. um, so, I mean, the traditional classroom is set up to kind of meet the most needs possible, but when you have an exceptional learner, it can be difficult to kind of find your place there. So that's one of the benefits of a classroom like ours is it's very individualized. We are Students are able to work at their own pace, one-on-one with an instructor, and we, the Stella Circle, the rest of the Employment Services Division provides support to those learners to make sure that their needs are met while they're here so that they can really focus on their learning. So, again, you're the person working in this. You know all about it, and I know nothing. So I think there's different levels, like level one, two, three of adult basic education. What does level one look like? What is that reflective of, like high school or junior high, or what does that mean? That's right. There is a level one program, which would be literacy and numeracy, so math and reading up to a grade eight level. Level two and level three is a grade nine and into high school. So that really is where you would get your credits and you kind of graduate from high school. Level one is foundational learning in in math and reading. It probably takes a lot, whether or not it was a ADHD or a mental illness or just something in your life where you walked away from school. It probably takes a lot of 
looking inward. I don't know if the word is the guts or the courage or the stigma associated with acknowledging the fact that you don't have the basics of literacy and numeracy and thinking, well, I have to do something about this. What's, where's the encouragement? Because coming out the other end, you've got some new skills and you may indeed be able to advance in the workforce. But it's that, like many things in this life, when we've got a shortcoming, to acknowledge it and to do something about it sometimes is a pretty difficult individual task. Absolutely. One of the core values of Stella Circle is courage, and that is something that every student who walks into our building shows. So you can imagine if you left school in a, maybe you didn't have a good experience, maybe you left early, maybe it was a really like hard time for you, the courage it would take to walk into a new building to want to talk to new people about maybe trying school again. So they, they, those learners show so much courage every day just to kind of reach out and ask for help. I think what people are seeing is that without some basic reading skills, it's almost impossible to get through, uh, you know, your daily life. You can't read the flyers to shop appropriately. You can't read medical documentation that comes from your doctor, from the hospital. Lots of people come to us and say, I would really like to be able to communicate on social media with my grandkids or with my kids or look for a job online, and I can't do those things without some basic uh, reading skills. So there's lots of motivations for people who come to us they're almost as individual as the people who do but any number of those are what kind of gives people that little push to get up call us reach out and look for the support and we acknowledge that that takes a lot of courage to do that so when somebody comes to us they're um they work with an employment counselor they work with an employment support worker as well to kind of help them navigate some of the other things that are around because school is just one part of somebody's life they still need to figure out childcare. they need to figure out how to get here they need to still you know grocery shop and do laundry and all the other things that we do to keep our life going so one of the unique things about our program is the supports that are surrounding people those wraparound supports while they're in class to give them the best opportunity to be successful so what does that mean? Is, uh, there's a flexible course load or am I in the room for a designated day and time or how does it work to allow for that wraparound service to be helpful? Sure. So our classroom is four days a week, full time, uh, nine to three. I'm not sure exactly what the times are going to be, but nine to three ish, and a half day on Friday. But while they're here, they're located in the same building as the support workers. Okay. So um, people can reach out. We can take people out of class to chat with them. You know, we provide food here a lot of times. So, but the actual learning is can be one on one with an instructor or one on one with yourself. So everybody's working at their own pace so it's not about you know getting a whole class to to a certain point by the end of the semester it's about letting each person kind of learn and grow at their own speed or whatever kind of works for them oftentimes basic not having basic literacy skills is accompanied with numeracy concerns as well yeah do we have any real idea about i mean your graduating class was seven but i have to imagine in this city or this region alone seven scratches the surface of the numbers of people who really need this upgrade of skills and knowledge because all the things you mentioned to be able to navigate, even in the numeracy world, just to manage your own money. Like yeah. uh, there's almost everything in this world that you touch other than simply maybe watching basic television. You need to have those rote skills. So or rote's the wrong word. Do we have any real idea about how prevalent the issue is? Uh, I think that there is, I, th 
I personally, I don't know the numbers in the city, but I would say just from anecdotal from the folks that we meet, employment services as a larger division sees about 500 people a year. And a number of those, I would say a good percentage of those would disclose saying that they experience troubles in their life because of their literacy or their numeracy skills. Like you mentioned, just learning how to use money or being able to use money effectively, plan around money is so essential now with so many people living in poverty that without those skills, it really sort of impacts your shopping, your bills, your access to other things in the community. So that's kind of why we're pushing or why we're celebrating learning in an academic environment. And hopefully we would like to invite anybody who feels like they have an issue with reading or writing or math to give us a call, even if they don't know where on the level kind of the continuum they might fall. The way it works is someone will come to our program, they'll do an assessment with, a, with the teacher, with the instructor, um, to, to, and that'll gauge where their skills are. If they're above the level one program that we have, then they would still get connected to an employment counselor, and that employment counselor can make a referral to a level two program or a level three program in the city. We have great partnerships with some of the secondary programs, and we can really work with them to find a good fit for somebody if it, they're not a fit for our class. So the other groups, are, are you talking about things like uh, Academy Canada or Keen College yeah. or something? Academy Canada, Keen, College of the North Atlantic, uh, each of those have a uh, level two, level three program. And there is different sort of benefits to each of them. They all have a slightly different classroom culture. So when we meet with somebody, we would take someone to maybe do a tour of each of those classrooms to see which one fits for them. That's what we did with our graduating students. Um, and we have really good relationships with the instructors in those programs as well. So we can talk and chat and see kind of which program would best meet somebody's needs. I don't know if there would be anybody who's a graduate of your level one uh, program wanting to talk about their experience and consequently the hopeful success stories they want to share. If they wanted to share with me, I think that would be great as a, a way to encourage others who know they should take it to take it. But do you have returnees who are success stories speak to the group? Because nothing quite like seeing the carrot in action versus simply dangling one philosophically. Absolutely, and one of our one of my favorite events here is our graduation in June for the for the class. And usually, we would have somebody come back, a student who has graduated and moved on, come back and speak to the classroom. But we uh, we love to celebrate success stories. So if I can, uh, usually if I can find somebody to chat with them, then I definitely do. If one of the students, and really the students who move on, are so proud of their achievements, they are so proud of the work that they put in and they know how hard it is so they can come in and say this is hard work but is it ever worth it look where i am now look what i'm doing now i think it's great so if anyone has now had their interest peaked and would like to reach out to you what do they do they should call 579-1181 that's our main line they can just call and say I want to talk to somebody about ABE and we'll take it from there if people want more information about employment services ABE or any Stella Circle program they can check out our website at Stella Circle uh, that's online so of course of course you can find uh, there's lots of information about all of our programs and services there yeah it's just StellaCircle.ca so .ca, sorry. <laughs> no it's, it's an easy one so Hopefully yeah. this will help fill all the desks. So how big can the classroom get very quickly before I have to go? 
We go to between 10 and 12 students, okay. so very small size classroom to allow that individual learning. Well, let's see if we can break the record of last year's graduating class of seven. Uh, good to have you on, Sarah. Thanks for this. Thanks so much, Patty. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Sarah Mills, Program Coordinator with Employment Services at Stella Circle. We know there are a significant number of people in the province who could absolutely avail of these programs it's not for me to tell you what to do you'll do exactly as you see fit but maybe just maybe one of those if you're a graduate of these programs and went on to do level two or three say it for instance at Keene college how where you were before you took these programs where you are now what you think the program is meant to you might be the way to encourage someone else to do exactly that let's take a break ruby you stay right there she wants to talk about addictions don't go away welcome back to the program let's go to line number three good morning ruby you're on the air good morning patty a rainy one today. I don't know what it's doing outside my studio. It was a bit drizzly earlier, though, yeah. Anyway, Patty, thank you for uh, letting me come on your show again this morning, talking, of course, about the same thing that's very dear to me. Uh, of course, on Wednesday, August the 23rd, as you all know, I joined with many of my friends at Confederation Building for Rally to Change. I just want to give you an update of some of the things that have happened since that time that we met with our loved ones and, and their lives, of course, that has been destroyed by addiction. It was a very emotional time for all mothers and fathers who shared the loss of their children and the people in recovery who shared the sense of hope while continuing to live in the shadow of their disease. I want to thank all of the different parties, politicians who came out of all stripes to help us in that rally that day, especially Minister Ogan and Minister Osborne for speaking and engaging with us. In the following, in the days that followed the rally, I'm pleased to say that I've already met twice with government ministers and officials on ways that we can work together to do better. The most recent meeting was on August 31st, which was the International Overdose Awareness Day, including representatives from the Department of Health and Community Services, Justice and Public Safety, Children, Seniors and Social Development, as well as a representative from the Royal Newfoundland Constabulary. We met And here are some of the highlights that we talked about in that meeting. The urgency of a recovery center. I stress the importance of starting at least a 10-bed center as soon as possible in maybe a currently existing building. Expand arm reduction throughout the province current recovery centers to have shorter time frames. Before we get any further down the list, Ruby, when you say expand harm reduction, what are we talking about exactly? Because there's a lot involved with harm reduction policy. Well, uh, safe centers, exchange of needles, uh, you know, safe needles, in outside of our St. John's area, I'm not sure that there are any or many. And we have outreach. I'm not sure there's many outside of our city. I think we need to see it 
in almost every, well, like, for example, let me say Gander, Bishop Falls, Grand Falls, Cornerbrook, Deer Lake. At least I know we can't win every little community, but we need to expand it across this province. Understood. Agreed. And uh, we also really need a shorter time frame between detox and recovery. Like when they come out of detox, they need to go straight into recovery. That's a very important thing. And then we need suitable housing available off on departure from recovery centers. Because right now, they come out of recovery, whether they go to Umberwood or... uh, the other one in Arbor Grace, they come out and they have to go back into what we call uh, the shelters. Same place they left, probably. We need affordable housing that they can go in and probably be able to reunite with some of their families. And, of course, the availability of mental health diagnosis and availability of mental health medical professionals because we don't have a lot of that in this province right now. And one of the other things we talked about was ensuring that HMP professionals have necessarily training for inmates with mental health issues and inmates displaying mental health episodes undergoing appropriate assessment and diagnosis. The HMP require an overview to ensure human humane treatment of all inmates and the early assessment in the in the education system, like as early as grade one, because they do assessments at the school, but I think they start them probably grade four or later. So maybe if they were started in grade one, it would really help with their mental health issues. These meetings and the discussions we are having with government are moving us one step at a time in the right direction. Government has shown a willingness to make changes so we can get our loved ones to the support we need. I look forward to continuing this work and reducing the damage drugs are causing in so many of our friends, neighbors, and family members. I am so pleased that government took the time to put four of their departments in two different meetings in two weeks. So it's evidence that they are moving with us. So I think we have to stay together and work together. It's very important to keep that in mind, that when we work together and we work in numbers, we get things done. Ruby, I appreciate the time this morning. Hopefully, whatever, I don't know if the right word is momentum, whatever was gained from that rally and the heightened conversation and government attention, hopefully it has positive outcomes. Because if you hear the stories I do and have the life experience that you do, it's really quite sad and there's lots that can be done to make the place healthier and safer. It's just a matter of the will to do it. Harm reduction policies are the key, the linchpin, to make any path forward here for, as the aforementioned, safer and healthier. Uh, Thank you, Ruby. I wish you well. Stay in touch. Thank you. You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Let's go ahead and take a break for the news. When we come back, certainly lots of time left to speak with you on a topic that is up to you. Don't go away. 
Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers. Your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Lauren. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Uh, I have uh, two things I want to do this morning. One, first of all, I want to give a bouquet to to the ANC, the Association for New Canadians. And secondly, I want to pose what I think is an important question we need to ask. Um, the Association for New Canadians, I, I have been working with uh, some of the Ukrainians just on a volunteer basis since they've come here. And I got to tell you, I, I have seen nothing but compassion and hard work and diligence and uh, just uh, an A++ to the Association for New Canadians. I, I, I've been blessed by them. And I've seen their hard work, and uh, they go right up to the boundaries of everything that the government has agreed to provide. And uh, they take these people home with them at night in their hearts. Uh, there's, there's, I, I, can't, I can't say enough good about the Association for New Canadians. But I have a question. My question is... Once uh, a new Canadian has exhausted everything that the uh, Association for New Canadians have been permitted uh, to deliver, once that's happened and they pass this 45-day window which says we're not putting you up in a hotel anymore, what happens then? Do these people join the multitudes that are already uh, on our streets as homeless people? Are they, uh, do they qualify for all of the social net uh, that sometimes catches people who find themselves in difficult situations? Uh, could it be that they would be evicted to the street? What, what happens when the Association for New Canadians can absolutely do no more? Fair question. So they say that at the 45-day potentially evicted notice comes that there can be exceptions that are offered there. But like everything else that the ANC does, which is a terrific organization, it's an ongoing issue. So they created a home share program, which will hopefully alleviate some of the pressure on some of the newcomers, uh, Ukrainians in particular. When the Ukrainian you newcomers or refugees, however people want to call it, when they were fast-tracked to the country, it came with a caveat that most or some of the supports that newcomers would get would not be available to them. If you're not a permanent resident or a citizen, you don't qualify for all of the social safety net programs that are currently in place. So... I suppose the summary answer, and I can't necessarily speak directly for the ANC on this, is it's just an ongoing concern. It's ongoing fundraising. It's ongoing awareness. It's ongoing trying to forge partnerships with different people and organizations in the community and the government. So I don't think there's a catch-all answer to the question, albeit a huge one that needs better understanding, I guess, in the general public. And I would imagine, even more importantly, a better understanding amongst the newcomer community themselves. 
Yeah, uh, I mean, you you and I both know that any in any group of three thousand people, I, I I hear that's the number of people we've brought in. Uh, in any group of three thousand people, there will be a percentage of people for whom the uptake of the programs is not as swift as others. Uh, they won't learn the language as fast. Uh, they may develop health problems. Uh, there's all kinds of reasons why uh, all people don't uh, accede to the level that we would hope they are at at the end of a specified program. So we know that in any group of 3,000 people, any group. So what was the plan when we were bringing them in that we, we, should, we should have anticipated uh, that there would be that percentage, and I am not seeing. I am not seeing that exceptions are are being made for everybody, and I am fearful that there would be people that head to the streets, and I have reason to fear that. And there'll be people that will go to other parts of the country. We do know that outside of Russia and Ukraine themselves, there's more Ukrainians in Canada than any other country in the world. So there will be inevitably a portion of these who fall through these so-called cracks. There will be another portion who will leave to be closer to already well-established pockets or neighborhoods or communities of Ukrainians elsewhere in the country. So I, again, I have no idea what will become of all 3,000 if that's the firm number. We do know that many of them, somewhere in the neighborhood of over two-thirds, have already already found themselves housing. Many have found themselves a job. Many are continuing to work towards improving their English. But yeah, inevitably, some people will fall through the cracks. There is no doubt about it. But I think there's also going to be a fair percentage that if that looks like what's going to become of them, they'll move elsewhere in the country. So uh, that that might be true. Uh, and and that, that would be a, a good outcome if they have somewhere to land, if they have the experience money to be able to actually move somewhere else in the country. Uh, that's not the case. That is not the case. Uh, some of them are are just barely, barely uh, getting by. And there are others who uh, could very well have already found themselves with an eviction notice who cannot speak the language, have no idea how to navigate the system of being on the street in Newfoundland and Labrador. And where I think this question needs to land is not with the ANC. Look, they would do more and more and more. The compassion of that organization is Without question, the excellence of that organization is without question. Where this needs to land now are the people who brought them here in the first place. It has to land with uh, Minister Byrne and his team. What now? We certainly didn't bring them here to end up uh, homeless. That was never our intention. The government had excellent intentions. And the government, by the way, has done a very, very good job. But now we've reached another stage. Now we've reached another stage. And um, these people are ill-equipped to navigate our system 
even though they probably should be at this point a year later, absolutely, I agree. But what if they're not? I mean, you know, that's that to me is I'd like for Minister Byrne to ask one, to answer one, if he knows that has happened, that people have been evicted to the streets. Two, how many? And three, what happens now? Okay, and fair enough. Um, We'll also be happy enough to have the ANC uh, to speak to the first portion of your questions or concerns is what's going on now, what happens after 45 days, those types of things. We're happy to have the minister on as well, but I think we've also, I think, done a pretty good job here, certainly on the VOC Morning Show, to speak directly to some of the newcomers themselves that have found themselves in difficult circumstances, unable to find a place to live, unable to find a job, unable to, you know, settle down or settle in like they thought they were going to be able to upon arrival. So we've had those stories on, which I think are every bit as helpful as the minister responsible, to be honest with you, because unless we hear from them about what their actual life experience is, then we're just hypothetically traipsing down one path or another with the minister. But we're happy to have all three voices on. Well, I certainly don't have uh, any any permission to speak to specific details, but uh, I can tell you I do have some some concerns about what happens once they cross that boundary of every last thing that the ANC can do, and then they are in Newfoundland uh, just trying to migrate the system, to migrate to a better place, and very, very... Now, the ANC does not support stop supporting them once they leave the housing part. They still will stay in touch with them, try to stay in touch with them, and try to get them a job and try to get them housing. But they could very well find themselves out of options, no place to go. And uh, that concerns me, not only for the for the new Canadians, i got to say, Patty, but I'll extend that. Uh, to all of the people who live on the streets, I know we've we've got a significant problem, and uh, but this is one that's unique to us. We put a desk up. We said, "Look, come with us. Come to Newfoundland," and they came, and they were glad to be here. And Newfoundlanders have been absolutely outstanding in their support, uh, personally, privately. Uh, Churches and individuals, uh, other organizations. Uh, I've seen the Legion involved. Oh my goodness, it, it's been good. It's been an outpouring. But now we're coming to a bit of a crunch when somebody could have to pack their bags the night before and find out that eleven is eleven o'clock tomorrow morning. We no longer house you. I appreciate the thoughts and concerns and, you know, all three of those voices, the newcomers themselves, the ANC, and, of course, the department, which we've spoken to many times on these matters. Uh, You know, we did set up a desk. The responsibility in large part, you know, shouldn't have to rely on community groups and uh, legions and churches. The government absolutely actively attracted, welcomed, brought 
X number, if 3,000 is the number, so be it, 3,000 Ukrainians to the province. Then, consequently, the government really created a, a landscape where there were supports required. I know some supports have been offered, but if we are arriving at a crossroads, that doesn't mean that the government all of a sudden is not responsible solely or in large part for the future of the newcomers. Uh, I appreciate the time, Lauren. Thanks for the call. Thank you, sir. Have a good day. You too. Take care. Right. Bye-bye. All right. uh, Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, the Empowered Disability Resource Center. And I mentioned Dr. Rachel Prouse off the top of the show, looking at the one-year implications, not just on the revenue side, but what it means and how we should think about and evaluate whether or not the sugar tax is good policy, it's working, or we'll get Dr. Prouse's thoughts right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Rachel Prouse is an assistant professor of nutrition and dietetics dietetics at Memorial University and joins us on line number three. Good morning, Dr. Prouse. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Excellent. Thanks. How about you? Good, thank you. So uh, I read some of the comments that you've offered about the sugar tax, which is about one year old as of now. You know, for me, it's hard to assess whether or not it's quote-unquote working because we don't have any sales data. What's the starting point for you assessing the strategy that the government has employed here? Yeah, that's such a great question. This evaluation is quite tricky. It's got multiple layers, and it's going to be a long-time kind of evaluation. So, one, you're right, sales data is kind of one of the closest indicators that can tell us, are people changing their purchasing behaviors one way or the other? Um, But there's multiple other kind of indicators we need to look at from start to finish to see maybe where where is the policy working and and where along that continuum is it it maybe falling, falling short. So, what I mean by that is, one, we first need to know that people are aware of the tax, then they need to know whether the price of the beverage has changed higher or lower to incentivize them to change their purchasing. And then once we even have sales data, we need to know, did people drink those beverages that they purchased? And and did they adjust their diets in other ways to compensate for sugar intake in, in other ways? Um, and then at the end of the day, we need kind of health outcomes. So sales data is, is one indicator that we definitely need, um, that the government should probably be consider, considering buying if they're not getting it from, from the industry. Um, but we need multiple things to look at um, to make sure that the, the tax is working as it's intended. A key point I think you make in your comments in the news article I read this morning is when I grocery shop, I'm not thinking about the fact that I bought a tin of beans, but I also bought a sandwich that Sobeys made for me, and there's a tax implication there. I'm going down the soda pop aisle, and I see a price, and I think, well, that's the price because I'm used to shopping for groceries. So until you get the receipt in your hand, you probably, even subconsciously, possibly didn't even consider the implication of tax. So where does this policy fall short? Because unless you see the, pr- the price point pressure right in front of your very eyes while you're pushing your card around, you probably don't even consider it. Well, that's that's exactly it. So so that's the, the point of doing not just kind of impact evaluation, right? So not just looking at the sales and, and did um, the purchasing of sugary beverages change over time, but that actual implementation-based evaluation of did we see a price change? Are consumers aware of it? Because you're absolutely right. If we don't know what we're – if we're not seeing um, that, you know, prices are 50 cents more for, for a product compared to a different product, we're not going to be 
be making that decision. And it's going to be different for different people. So the valuation should also look at not just what's happening, but also for whom. Who is most price sensitive? Is it younger? Is it older? Is it lower income? Is it different genders? Is it high consumers, right? So, so the impact of the tax and the impact of the actual price difference might be different depending on the type of consumer that you are. Well, initially, some of the people opposing the tax said it would probably have bigger or larger impact with the most vulnerable and the poorest amongst us because the price point for pop is vastly different than other uh, choices like orange juice, which has a sugar component, and or milk, which has a sugar component. So the complexities that you point to, how do we even approach a strategy to gauge success? Because let's just say I consumed, I went from full bore Pepsi to diet, and I avoided the tax, but I didn't change anything else in my diet. I still have a fairly sedentary lifestyle. So how do we even assess whether or not anything like this works? Because long-term health implications is exactly that, a long-term health care study. So how do you think we should consider it? What do you think government should do to really gauge that? Because if I didn't change anything but moving from Pepsi to Diet Pepsi, probably not a lot changes with my overall health. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think we underestimate the impact of small changes in some sense, and sometimes it's really difficult to see kind of at an individual level, and, and it's really hard to see the health impacts that we don't end up having, right? When we don't when we don't have a heart attack, it's, that's hard to measure. Um, but the the point is is having uh, like a lot of data from a lot of different people over time, and comparing it to other jurisdictions that don't have the tax, right? So you can you can tend you can design a study to look at what are the trends in health over time and was there a, an obvious shift kind of around the time that the tax happened. I think the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that like this isn't a silver bullet. This is it is an evidence based a policy. It needs to be well implemented. It needs to be passed through to the consumer. It also needs to generate revenue so that we can reinvest it in other health promotion initiatives, but it's not going to solve all the health issues in a population. And and there's going to be a limit as well as to how much we can actually conclude that this tax is the reason why something, you know, why we had certain health, um, health impacts. It's going to be mixed up with the reinvestment in school nutrition programs and the infant nutrition supplement and the physical activity tax credit and the glucose monitoring, all those other things that are, are part of the impact of the, t- the tax, it's going to be hard to separate it. But that's the nature of public policy, public health policy, where you have multiple different types of interventions and collectively they are supporting healthier consumers. It just makes more sense, in my personal opinion, in other jurisdictions, where as opposed to implementing a so-called sin tax to the pop product, you go right to the manufacturer. And there's additional tax for them to be paid if they don't reduce their sugar content, uh, period. So then you guarantee less sugar in the intake of the consumer because there's less sugar in the product. Uh, Very very quickly. So when we talk about things like sugars and fats and salt and all the rest, people use the word moderation. And people have been told for so long that most things are okay in moderation. But what does that even mean anymore? So is moderation average intake? How do you think we should consider that? Because I think people fool themselves into just that floating target of what might be moderation. Yeah, I mean, I don't even think I, I have a good answer for moderation, and that's been a word we've been using in dietetics for yeah for decades. And I think it's different for everyone else for everyone because everybody's average could could be different. Um, I think that this tax can help kind of you know reduce your average by you know let's say a hundred hundred calories or something from sugar. So um, I think moderation probably means. You know, is it your daily beverage, right? Is it something that you have with every 
every uh, meal? If so, maybe that's not moderation. The tricky thing is that sugar is in a lot of different beverages, right? So maybe we have Pepsi, but we also have a sweetened coffee and we also have chocolate milk and we also have, you know, a yogurt drink. Or, um, so it's, it's easy to say, oh, I'm drinking Pepsi in moderation. Uh, but actually, if you look at all the different types of, of beverages, it might not be moderation anymore. But I don't have a great answer to that question. Well, because it's probably an impossible question. <laughs> that, yeah. I apologize for asking the impossibles. Yeah. Yeah. Also, we're talking about our behavior as consumers. But how about the people who make and package and distribute and sell the product itself? Because food marketing is tricky business. It's not that long ago where this whole fad of moving from the full bore content of whatever thing, like a sour cream, to going to the diet variety. Turned out a lot of that was a scam. Then we've got the shrinkflation and skimflation, the shelfflation that we see out there. Then there's some new front of package uh, labeling changes coming. I don't think government does enough to hold these producers to account. I mean, you've got to bring a microscope or a magnifying glass to read the content on the back of many products that we have out there. What do you make of the way the world of of food packaging, even if we're talking about best before versus expired dates, it feels like there's a lot of unfairness in the market. Yeah, well, it's really tricky because there, there's what we call so much noise in in um, food packaging, food marketing, right? You're getting so many different messages and messages generated by the industry are intended to encourage consumers to buy their product, right? They want to make money off of a consumer. And then you throw in, you know, messages from the government, which are great, you know, rethink your drink, that's fantastic. But it's mixed in with all of this this food marketing. And it is, it's really tricky to pass a policy that's industry related because there is a lot of pushback from it because it actually might work and you actually might have consumers rethink the, their consumption of certain things. So the food marketing is is another piece that is, is really tricky. And um, that's a whole other policy But if we have a policy like that, that would support this type of um, taxation as well. But you're right, your earlier comments about manufacturers and maybe we need to target that level to reduce sugar content. And that's something we're seeing in other, you know, taxes, uh, sugar sweetened beverage taxes around the world. In France in particular, they've just kind of revised theirs to say we're actually going to tax it based on sugar content of the beverages. And that really encourages the industry to say, okay, maybe we shouldn't put so much um, sugar in our beverage. So the industry response is something that we are looking at as well in our study, um, also with Dr. Scott Harding. And um, so we should be able to look a little bit, are they changing the product sizes? Are they changing marketing? Are they putting things on sale more to encourage more consumers? So that whole industry part is is a big piece that might require multiple different policies. Yeah, I mean, there's been some moves to talk about advertising for products aimed at children. And before someone tells me I'm trying to create a nanny state, well, not really. We're spending about $4 billion a year here in this province on healthcare, some of our food habits have a direct relationship with our overall health. So it's not talking any state. It's just kind of protecting us from things that we kind of, for the most part, people don't know. You can yeah. read the contents on the back of whatever product and you can get the breakdown of percentage and how much of the component is vegetable oil and water and sugar and fats and otherwise. But what does that even mean to most Canadians? I would suggest not a lot. If people who are really in tune with their body and their intake, maybe they can digest, or that's a good choice of words, maybe they can absorb the information on the product but most of us including me can't really so you know maybe there's a better way for us to just approach how things are packaged how they're labeled and the way that they're advertised to all of us because not just kids i mean i'm 54 i make plenty of bad choices in the grocery store i would think 
Oh yeah, yeah. Advertising, advertising is it works really well for a lot of people. And there's, you know, some people say exactly what we say. Well, we don't want a nanny state, but the other side of it is, if you think about actually who is controlling our our food systems, it is, you know, a few multinational companies, which could also be seen as a nanny state from that perspective. So I, I agree that I think government policies can work really effectively. They can work really well for people who have um, kind of less power in our societies. Um, um, and people don't like change, so it's really hard to do. It's hard to get the policy right the first time. Um, but, you know, sticking with it and, and, you know, these conversations of, okay, this might be working, but maybe what else do we need to do to make sure that this actually works at the end of the day to make our society healthier are really important. Yeah, now you got me thinking, which nanny would I like to cozy up to, the corporate or the government <laughs> nanny? There you go. Not sure of two very attractive options. <laughs> Maybe a balance between the two. Yeah, that's right. It's a shared, shared custody. Uh, I appreciate the time this morning, Dr. Prowse. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That's uh, Dr. Rachel Prowse. She's an assistant professor of nutrition and diet ethics at Memorial University. Let's take a break. When we come back, Kathy Hawkins. She's next. Executive Director of Empower Disability Resource Center. And then we've got some conversation around international students and or simply housing issues regarding students because they're back to class tomorrow. Uh, don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Kathy Hawkins is the Executive Director, Empowered Disability Resource Center, and joins us on the line. Good morning, Kathy. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about you? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm calling to remind your listeners this morning about the job fair that's going to be happening tomorrow at the Reed Centre, and it's hosted by the Mount Pearl Paradise Chamber of Commerce. So there's a whole lot of different types of businesses that are going to be there, and Empower is going to be there because we're going to be helping job seekers build their resumes and offer career counseling services. So if there's any job seekers that are listening to us this morning and interested in coming by to check it out and to apply for some of the jobs that are going to be available, we'd be happy to be there to help. We spoke with Wanda Palmer from the yeah. Chamber of Commerce last week. It looks and sounds like a really well-rounded offering for those who will be in attendance, uh, those people who are setting up the uh, tables and the desks, what have you. What exactly? Exactly goes on at Empower Disability Resource Center. I think I'm pretty sure, but for those who are not sure, what do you do? Well, we provide services to people with disabilities who are looking to get more engaged in community. And also one of our services is a corporate service known as Inclusion and L, where we will provide services and supports to employers who are interested in becoming more disability confident and break down barriers in their workplace. The I, I don't know exactly what the percentage is, and disabilities come in many forms, but somewhere in the neighborhood of 20-25% of the community has one type of disability or another. Oftentimes people think, well, you have to be blind or in a wheelchair to have a disability, but some are very much unseen. How do you think we should think and, and consider disability? Well, Patty, you know that 22% of our population, so in Newfoundland and Labrador, we have about 115,000 people who identify as experiencing barriers on a daily basis. And you're absolutely right, you know, 12% of our community have invisible disabilities, you know. So it's, it's really an opportunity for folks who are not sure how to handle disabilities and look for work at the same time to come out to the job fair and to get some supports. We're going to have an employment counselor on staff. We're going to be offering resume building workshops in the morning. And there's just 
a whole lineup of different types of employers who are going to be coming. So we're really looking forward to that. So that's setting up the potential employee. What's the message to employers? Because, you know, whether or not they say it out loud or they actually have it part of their corporate speak, but, you know, whether it be hiring people who are up in years or hiring someone with a disability or hiring someone with a mental health diagnosis or mental illness diagnosis, they might be hesitant. There's all kinds of reasons and legal reasons why they can't and shouldn't, but you know full well the hesitancy is out there. What's the message to the employer? We always talk to the employer about accessibility confidence, you know, but what they don't realize is that, you know, even though they might not necessarily want to hire a person with a disability, they already have 22% of their workforce working (laughs) with them who have disabilities right now. That's a good way to put it. I never even thought of it like that because without question, inside the workforce in this uh, corporation, we probably have someone in the neighborhood of 22% who have some sort of disability that's being managed, and they're still productive members of the team. So, and maybe that's not the right way to say it, but I think you know what I mean. Okay, uh, so the details one more time for folks who would like to work through you and your group to be prepared for the job fair. So it's tomorrow from 9.30 to 4.30 at the Reed Centre. It's being hosted by the Mount Pearl Paradise Chamber of Commerce. We're going to be there. There's going to be lots of other community groups there as well as a whole host of employers. So please come out and join us so that we can help you become more employed. Kathy, appreciate the time. Good luck tomorrow. Thanks so much. Thanks, Kathy. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye now. Kathy Hawkins, Executive Director at Empower Disability Resource Centre. Okay, let's keep going. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the chairperson of the Canadian Federation of Students, Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Mary Feltham. Good morning, Mary. You're on the air. Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me this morning. (laughs) Happy to have you back on. Look, there's an endless list of issues regarding back to classes for students, whether it be domestic or international. But let's start with housing. What do you know? Because, you know, I've long said out loud that Mon needs to revisit their home share program officially, not just at the 11th hour, say that it's a possibility for residents in the community. What do we know about housing? Yeah, housing is definitely uh, an issue for everyone, especially students. And MUN, both in St. John's and in Cornerbrook, uh, their residences are at full capacity with fairly extensive wait lists that have been increasing over the recent years. I know that there's discussions about creating new buildings, but I don't know of any formal plans for both the campuses as of yet. So does your group represent students at Mon, Marine Institute, CNA? Who is the membership? Everyone. We are 100% united, which is really unique for um, our province. We are the only province that has all public post-secondary educational institutes uh, united through the Canadian Federation of Students of Newfoundland and Labrador. So we represent CNA students, um, undergraduate and graduate students at all campuses of Memorial University. I'd like to dig into a couple of specifics, and then you're free to say whatever you'd like to and broach whatever concern or questions that you have. We've had many conversations uh, about the Student Wellness and Counseling Center. So the university kind of glosses over the fact that you don't need accreditation for the program for to still offer it, you know, in addition to the psychology program where we're running short on mentors, consequently maybe running short on graduating psychologists. What's the update at the Student Wellness and Counseling Center? Uh, Munfa did release an update on it. Um, I believe that they are working towards filling the vacancies, which will benefit uh, and really bode well for an accreditation. So we will hopefully see um, 
that the Student Wellness Center at St. John's campus ha- maintains its accreditation with the increased, uh, not even the increased, the, the fill in the vacancies on the staffing that they see currently. So that would definitely help students uh, be able to avail of the services there. So as opposed to me putting you on the spot to know every single campaign and every single result, <laughs> what's at the top of your agenda, not only for this conversation, but the back to classes starting tomorrow? The top of our agenda is definitely advocating to get our students out uh, to rally for free education because we want to make sure that people have the ability to access the right to education. And we know, like you said, there's a whole host of issues. Um, And ultimately, one of the ways that we can combat it is by removing the financial burden to at least the education itself. Um, So we're actually in Stephenville right now talking to some CNA students uh, about uh, rallying for free education and how we can make that possible. Um, So that is our main goal, is rallying to get more funding from the government to create free education for all, for every campus. (laughs) When the government made the decision to withhold some $65 million and transfer money to MUN, what it resulted in was a doubling in tuition, which of course is a real shock to the economics for many people who would like to be able to get an education. Let me just, not in the form of pushback, but just to paint the picture. So free education. At one point, it was free to go to Memorial University. That's actually happened in our history. But there's a school of thought that says free tuition, zero fees, is a gift to the well-to-do, is a gift to the upper middle class. It's a gift to the rich who can afford it, as opposed to trying to expand grants and bursaries and scholarships uh, for folks who do need the support. So when people say that, well, we're just giving something to the rich folks who should indeed be paying their fair share and paying their way through school, what do you say? Well, they would still be paying their fair share through taxes. <laughs> um, but it's not just for the wealthy. It's also for those who can't afford to get an education because we also forget that it's not just the tuition that is an expense. It's also the housing. It's the food security. It's all the basics that we need to uh, survive. And we often see those who have um, less financial security taking on more work. And if they have to take on even more work to be able to afford the right to an education, they're not going to have any time left for it. So that will definitely benefit those who are already struggling, and it will help benefit them in our province in the long term because we'll have more educated folks going into different uh, fields such as nursing and engineering, visual arts, all the things that we need and enjoy in our life and it'll help our province thrive this wouldn't be directly in your crosshairs but after the strike last year and after all of the issues regarding dr timmons and all the rest of it the concept of collegial governance the instructors having more seats uh, on the board of regions which of course will have a direct impact on the students what do you hope uh, is a result of this expansion of the board of regions what it'll mean for student life because if there's loggerheads at the top then that's going to have a direct impact on students in some form whether it be tone or tenor or availability or accessibility what do you hope the changes mean yeah that's a great question um and we did work very closely with mansa and the students are or sorry the faculty are the ones that work the closest with the students most of the time so they hear our issues they see our struggles and i feel like they would be an excellent voice for us on the board of regents so they'll be able to um it's a strengthening in our numbers we'll be able to work together the, the solidarity movement to ensure that Uh, The concerns of students and our faculty and our staff are being addressed at all levels of university admin decision making. I appreciate the time. Would you like to say anything else this morning, Mary? 
highly appreciate you taking the time to chat. And if folks are interested in learning more about the Canadian Federation of Students, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter, CFSNL, or I guess X now, technically. <laughs> but yeah, we're on CFSNL. We always post updates about our campaigns and student issues there. <laughs> Thanks. It's going to be Twitter to me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> That's all I can do. Mary, good to have you on the show. Have a great year. Take, take care. Bye-bye. That's Mary Felton, the chairperson of the Canadian Federation of Students, Newfoundland and Labrador. Let's take a break. When we come back, Jackie's in the queue to talk about how we have the conversation or approach the conversation. With, we know someone who's struggling. With what? Jackie will tell us. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Jackie, you're on the air. Hi. I noticed that on the program lately there's been a lot of talk about drug and addiction and mental health. Mm-hmm. I have a a family member that I'm really concerned about that I believe may be into drugs. How does a person approach that subject? Where can I go to get educated about? That's a good question. Well, you know, I don't really know if there's a one-size-fits-all with how to start the conversation. I guess like most things, when we're trying to get to the bottom of things, we just ask the question straight up. You know, exactly what is your relationship with drugs? Do you need help? You know, can I help you? Or would you like to talk about it? Or just however people want to broach it, because you'll know the person better than I would, because I'm not sure who we're talking about. But there should be different places where you can you know, get some probably much better advice than I can offer about how to start that conversation. Because again, if it was someone, one of my friends, it might require a different conversation than the person that you're talking about. So I know that's probably not a very helpful answer, but let me see if I can give you a a number. Um, I got this one specific group in mind. Okay, so it's probably a good place to start. Are we talking about a, a child or a teen or an adult or? A young adult. A young adult. Okay. Drugs-free Kids Canada, I think, deal with people up to the age of 18 and very formal approaches to that conversation. The Canadian Centre for Substance Abuse and Addiction is probably a very helpful place to go for any advice on that front. Would you like me to try to give you a couple of numbers to call? or? Yes, please. Okay. Let's see if I can get you something here. Because, I mean, I don't know 100% beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're doing drugs, but I suspect so I don't want to make the situation worse. Right. And, of course, if we're just trying to check in with our friends, it's not the same as saying, you must do this, you must do that. Because unless people acknowledge their issue and or want help, they can't be helped. But I'm going to give you a number, and I think they're probably going to be able to give you some better advice on this than I can. It's a toll-free number. Do you have a pen and paper? Yes. Okay, so one eight three three. Mm-hmm. Two three five. Yeah. Four zero four eight. Like there's, it seems like, where does the parent or where does the, the cousin and the aunt or the friend go, to get help try and help somebody. Uh, Excellent question. Uh, I don't know if our own provincial 811 number might also be something that I try because they can probably put you in touch with 
healthcare professionals in this province that might also be of help to you. So I would try both of those. And, you know, the problem with some people who are dealing with addictions is that they become masters of disguise. You just really don't know what's going on in the world. They could be doing it very quietly and privately and are functional, but could have a real distinct problem. So that's where it becomes hard. You know, you can recognize someone who's strung out in the street, their body and their face are telltale signs that they have a serious addiction, but others can be quite mysterious and quite clever in hiding it. So try those two numbers and hopefully you'll get some solid advice. But if it was me, I would simply have the question honestly and ask the honest questions. And you know, you can always couch it by saying, look, I'm not trying to accuse you of anything. I just want to know if you want to talk about it. And you'll get an answer quickly. It'll either be yes, thanks for asking and all go away. Yes, yeah, see, it's such a touchy subject. It is. But if they know you and they know your intentions are to just want to check in on them, then maybe they'll be receptive. But, of course, you'll only know once you try. And I'm not saying you should. You'll do as you see fit. But call those numbers, see if they can give you a little bit more helpful guidance. And let me know how it goes, Jackie. Okay, thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome. Good luck. Okay, bye-bye. Fair stuff, boy, and tricky. Uh, let's go to line number two. Wayne, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Best kind. You? Uh, just uh, calling about uh, Seamus O'Regan now uh, and Justin Trudeau. The time they gave uh, blah, blah, there's $13 million and I think country ribbon, 800000 In the grand item, Knights of Columbus and St. Clair Avenue. And sent them email some well, prevailing as you know, help the community. And, and not, a, not a return email, no nothing. Never even told me. You know, that we're a non-for-profit. These other two companies are for-profit. Right? I mean, we help out the community in a great way. So just want to, you know, I, I'm assuming they're listening to this call. And oh, someone is, for sure. So who are yes. you, who do you represent, Wayne? Sorry. I'm Grand Knights and Knights of Columbus. Okay, it's uh, Knights of Columbus. Yes. So if the question is, how is it that your organization helping the community directly as a not-for-profit can't access funds while it looks like as seemingly as easy as for-profit cor- corporations? That's the question, is it? Yeah. I don't know how. Nobody's getting back to me. I, I don't know where to go. I'm looking up at the Internet. Just, uh, just give me some help. If you're going to get them for a, a 13 minutes for a profit, and, and we're a non-for-profit. You know, give me a reason. They're, they're good questions. I mean, there was all those millions for MasterCard to set up shop in one part of the country. I mean, there's endless examples of major and hugely profitable companies getting support from the government, a big industry, you know, so they're, they're good questions. I can't answer it. Sometimes no. there's specific pots of money for specific purposes that they avail of, right. and that wouldn't be the same as what you're trying to do with a, you know, an envelope of money to do all the things that the Knights of Columbus does. But so you're trying to reach uh, Minister O'Regan's office. Oh, I sent him a to me and I sent it to the Trudeau. I never even got a response. I never had a response from uh, Fury Hare or uh, somebody else who sent it to me. But I'm not getting no responses at all. And I'm just curious on my tax dollars, $13 million go to a for-profit and non-for-profit don't get an answer. I, I totally understand your concern. And even if it's not the answer you want, getting an answer is better than silence. So what Correct. what type of uh, 
what are you looking for in particular? So if you say money, you're looking for how much? Do you have specific projects attached to the money? Because sometimes that's yeah. required to get any sort of traction. No, that's right. We need to kind of do up our building. We need a bit of help with our building. That COVID killed us for two years. We had no income. Yeah. And our building is just, we need to do stuff with the building to upgrade it. Like a roof and siding and windows. And it's hard to raise roughly around a million dollars. It's hard to raise that. We're there, still spending our money on the community. Yeah, there's infrastructure money out there. And so here's what I would do just between me, you, and the gatepost. My pitch would be, in an effort to be more environmentally conscious, in an effort to save money on heating and the like, in the effort to reduce our carbon footprint, we need to do this and that, to the ventilation system, to the roof, to the insulation, to whatever. I think that would be an extremely sensible way to try to get infrastructure money because we know we hear them talk all the time about that particular issue and there are grants and funds out there for that type of infrastructure work so give that a shot in your next email to uh, Minister O'Regan's office or anybody else and if you know there's someone listening at his office here today very likely and I'd like for them to connect with me so I can help them connect with you but give that green business a shot with the want to get federal infrastructure money there might be a place to advance your cause there. Right. I'm just somebody, I'm looking for guidance from these people. Yep. That's what I'm looking. Help me out. You know, send me in the right, right direction. 100%. If they connect with me, I'll be the first one to connect back with you right away and give you some uh, help or guidance or a number or an email address, whatever I can do. Okay. Thank you, Patty. Have a great day. You too, Wayne. All the best. Thank All right. Bye bye. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the amount of money that does flow to Corporate Canada is outstanding standing for corporate Canada. <laughs> Maybe not so much for the rest of us, but now there are some established pockets of money for very specific purposes, and they're brought forward in budgets, And but then there's, you know, tax breaks and credits and subsidies and loans and grants, and sometimes it adds up. All right, we've been talking about the fact that, you know, there was a mental health all-party committee struck in 2017. I think most people know what needs to be done or at least have a base understanding of what needs to be done to deal with the now ever-growing concern of addictions. Now there's been an all-party committee in... It hasn't been struck yet because we don't know who's going to be on the committee, but we do know that Gerard Yetman is going to be part of it. He's with the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador. Jeff Bourne from U-Turn is going to be part of it, we're told. We'll get their thoughts on what that uh, committee needs to look like and maybe some of what they see on the ground where they work and live. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the executive director of the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland and Labrador. That's Gerard Yetman. Good morning, Gerard. You're on the air. Good morning. Right off the bat, you know, it's a step forward, maybe a little late in the game, but what are your initial thoughts on the fact that the government is now going to strike this all-party committee? Well, the well, we're, we're quite excited that, um, that the government has decided to... Um, to form a three-party committee um, and basically the three-party committee um, we already have had a three-party committee for mental health and addictions um, and why this is so important right now to um, establish a three-party committee is because we have implemented um, 
you know, I think it's over 50 recommendations in the area of addictions um, through the mental health and addiction strategy. So um, basically, it's very important for this committee to be reestablished because a lot of things have changed. Now, while we have, um, as a result of the mental health and addiction strategy, we have put a lot of services into place. Um, but because the ep- epidemic is changing um, and the drug crisis is changing, then we we do need to um, look at what what is working, what is not working, and what other things need to be put in place to address the crisis. When you say that the epidemic or the crisis is changing, in what form? Well, um, basically, we've moved from an opioid crisis to a drug crisis in general, um, and also we, uh, you know, we have a lot of tainted um, drugs. Uh, that's come on the scene over the last couple of years. So we need to look at, um, you know, other programs um, such as, you know, um, you know, overdose sites, uh, prevention sites, um, and really we need to consult with the with people with lived experience to find out what these what these new needs are and what can help. Where do you think are some of the distinct gaps in harm reduction? Because, you know, different parts of the country have taken different approaches to it. I mean, British Columbia is a a real example. Whether or not it's the right thing or the wrong thing, I don't know. And I guess we'll all find out in due course. But where do you think the big gaps are in this province for harm reduction? Uh, It's it's hard to say because, you know, there isn't any one answer. Um, to, um, you know, what a person is experiencing um, and what and what needs to be put in place for that individual to get to a point of uh, rehabilitation. So, um, you know, it's, it's very difficult. There are a number of programs across the country, um, and that's a part of what this three-party committee um, is going to do, is look at all of the things that have been put in place in other jurisdictions across the country and uh, look at what's working, what's not working, um, and if any of those can be, um, you know, rather than reinventing the wheel, um, are any of these programs something that we could establish here in Newfoundland? Do you have an example off the top of your head for something that's not working? Uh, well, I, I think, you know, a lot of things that have been put in place, for example, um, the overdose call-in line. So uh, an individual can call into um, a, a line that's available throughout Canada um, and be able to receive assistance while they're using. And so basically, if a person does experience overdose, then that line would automatically call the, um, the you know, the ambulance service uh, here in the province or the closest to the, call, the person that calls in. I don't think this is working really well, um, mainly because um, a lot of folks don't have, uh, don't have phones. Um, or they don't have access to internet um, to be able to access some of the services. So we do have to look outside of the box, and we also have to look at, you know, the determinants of health and the 
for example, the impact that that poverty, um, food insecurity, homelessness, um, <clears throat> it's, you know, basically all of these things are, are affecting um, what services we, we have in place, and some, some of them are not accessible to, to a lot of people. I think that's an important point because if the committee starts with looking at addictions as opposed to all the moving parts that lead to people uh, falling prey to addictions, then we're probably not going to make some very good decisions here because there is a difference between your addiction starting on a doctor's prescription pad versus some of the synthetic toxic drugs on the street versus homelessness and poverty and everything else that you mentioned. So hopefully we start at the beginning. Uh, inside of this, one thing that I think is a required change, and I'll get your reaction to this, is on until we see a larger group of people, whether it be politicians or otherwise, move from a sole focus on crime and punishment versus the healthcare crisis that we're experiencing, I don't think we're going to make much in the way of uh, forward momentum here. Because if we're talking about simply stiffer penalties for those committing a crime, whether it be that you broke into Marie's because to try to fuel your addiction, and or thinking just simply uh, ramping up sentences, even though we have to punish people, if you're organized crime and you're trafficking in drugs, you have to be punished accordingly. But we think about it as criminal justice and very little attention to health. Absolutely. I mean, you know, we it's already been, you know, we have scientific evidence that, that certainly punishment um, for drugs does not work. Um, and we've we've seen a number of changes in Canada, particularly in BC and Ontario, um, where a person won't be um, won't be prosecuted for carrying personal um, personal amount of drugs on their on their person. Um, and we don't have that in Newfoundland at the, at the present time. Um, and certainly, this three-party committee has to look at all aspects. And it's just not one department. Um, it's not just the Department of Health. It, it, we need justice uh, there at the table. Um, certainly, we need um, child youth and, and family services at the table. Uh, we need education at the table. Um, because there isn't any one answer, and you know, mental health, mental health and addictions. The strategy that we that we only concluded uh, in, within last year, um, certainly, you know, basically we know that we have to look at mental health uh, because mental health and addictions are are very connected. So basically, it's now this three-party committee. Which, uh, by the way, I'm I'm not a member of the three-party committee. The three-party committee is is actually the NDP, Liberals, and the Progressive Conservatives. Oh, I thought they were um, going to. They intended on bringing in organizations and people with lived experience. So it's not a simply all politicians. No, no. I, I mean, the, the committee itself is is are the political parties. Now, the the work of those political of that political party and the three party committee is to do consultations with organizations like okay. the one that I'm representing and like the one that Jeff is representing. U turn, but it's basically it's over six month period. Um, this party, this three committee party um, would actually interface and interview with um, all of the stakeholders within the community um, throughout the province because one of the things that that unfortunately people really focus on is is um, drug addiction in st. John's and certainly that's not the case um, and that's why 
setting up an overdose site, for example, is not that easy because our drug issue and our drug crisis is throughout Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, so, you know, over the last couple of years, while addressing the recommendations from the mental health and addiction strategy, um, for example, the distribution of clean supplies, we opened up an, um, another 50 sites across Newfoundland and Labrador. To, for distribution. So while we're making headway uh, in some areas, uh, there's a lot of other areas that we're not doing so well in. And what we need to do is identify those because the gaps that we have in St. John's, for example, are quite different than the gaps that we have in Central and Western and Labrador. And access to a lot of the services um, are urban-based as opposed to provincially based. So this, that basically that is the job of this three-party three committee is to um, work with stakeholders throughout the province, identify what these gaps are, and find solutions to those gaps that are identified. I appreciate the time as usual. Thanks for this this morning, Gerard. Okay, thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. Gerard Yetman, the Executive Director at the AIDS Committee of Newfoundland Labrador. Just very quickly, and again, it's completely irrelevant which uh, political party you support. But we once again, in this issue, it very much feels like we're talking about the politics of addictions versus policy. And they are not the same thing at all. So... One political party obviously has one thought on the matter. Some are very fuzzy or hazy or really noncommittal in one way or the other. But the political spectrum is no place for this to be decided. I mean, if it's a health-related matter, and it is, then maybe best practices inside the world of health might be where we should probably start, as opposed to, you know, let's toughen up sentences and let's p let people mischaracterize harm reduction as being some sort of enabling component when that's not what it is at all. So again, if inside an all-party committee, and I don't think we have the, the staunch different sides of the political spectrum in this province. We really don't. That's much more a case on the federal front, I would think. But if we think politics and the politics or political ideology is going to be any part of a solution to this crisis, I think right off the bat we're kidding ourselves. Let's take a break. When we come back, the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner Michael Harvey's in the queue, and then you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the province's Information and Privacy Commissioner. That's Michael Harvey. Good morning, Michael. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. Welcome back to the show. Thanks. It's been a while. It has been a while. So what do we know about what went on at the RNC with these breaches that you evaluated? What happened? Well, this goes back a very long time. Uh, it goes back to 2017. Uh, the the Rolling Flank Constabulary got complaints uh, about uh, what we call snooping. So someone uh, felt or uh, found out that uh, two people were identified, that uh, in two cases, two people that were employees, uh, civilian employees of the RNC had uh, gotten into or, and, uh, or accessed the RNC database and look for um, uh, information about them that they was not related to work duties. And so uh, the RNC investigated it and confirmed that these uh, two uh, employees looked accessed this information for um, uh, reasons other than valid work duties. And, uh, and then we got complaints uh, about that. And uh, Okay, go ahead. So just to be clear, the two people accused in these breaches, they were looking at it for information about themselves or others? About others, yeah. And then what comes across as really quite 
nefarious is for possible malicious or improper purposes. Now, anything that's outside of your own work duties would be improper, but malicious is an interesting choice of words. Are you able to tell us or elaborate on what malicious means? Well, that was the allegations at the time, right? The people were concerned that this information was going to be used for, um, uh, for the you know, again, that was the alleg- their words, allegation uh, of malicious purpose, something to do with a personal conflict that uh, that they were having. And um, so we didn't, uh, I, I don't think that those allegations were ever proven. I don't think that it, it was ever proven that the information was actually used uh, for improper purposes. And that's not what we ended up investigating, uh, what the information was used for. Um, that ended up being, and, and because of the seriousness of the, the allegations and, and the outcome of the RNC investigation, we did lay charges. So I do have the authority to uh, under the offense provision of the act, uh, but this this was done by my predecessor, uh, Commissioner Malloy, um, laid uh, laid charges against these two individuals. And then when that happens, um, it gets handed over to the Crown, which uh, conducts the prosecution. So that's what happened in that instance. My mandate normally, and this is always worth uh, uh, talking to the public about, we exist, and my investigations are investigations of public bodies. And so that's what this report ended up being about. It it was about, did the RNC have the right policies and procedures and safeguards in place to prevent this breach from happening? The investigation of what was was done by these individuals, that went, that was handed over, uh, we handed over our evidence to uh, to the to the crown, and they're the ones that conducted the prosecution. So, so that process, the prosecution, and then the the court. Uh, there was a decision at court, uh, and and then um, in early 2020, and then it was appealed. Uh, so all of this took uh, a long time to unfold, and we held our our report in abeyance while that was happening. And then now that that process has all everything uh, else that was going on with the file has concluded, now we. Close, you know, we came and, and closed the loop and issued our recommendations. And our recommendations are targeted at the RNC rather than at the individuals. And for the individuals, as an HR matter, uh, one got a one month unpaid suspension. The other said, I did not do, but got a two month suspension. In the That's courts, right. one, was, uh, one was a guilty plea and an absolute discharge. The other said, I'm innocent and were acquitted. So, inside the world of the culture of privacy and the recommendations, first off, I think the news story read that you acknowledge there's an improvement in the culture of privacy at the RNC. What else do they need to understand? Because sometimes we're leaving it up the sole responsibility of the employee to be willing to understand privacy rules or willing to break the rules. So how do we improve a culture of privacy? So, I mean, we, this was, we've been working with the RNC for years on this. And in the interim, while all this has been going on, uh, and again, this was launched by my predecessor, launched an audit of the RNC on the access controls on the database and so we issued our audit report earlier this year on on the RNC so we've been working with the RNC now for years on uh, the things that it needs to do as an organization um, and and those things can be uh, you know cultural 
um, but they can also be putting in safeguards and those safeguards can be things like training uh, and policies but they also can be technical safeguards so we've been working with the RNC on all of that uh, so culture you know it all of those components need to be in place so cultural things like the messaging from from the top and ensuring that your your middle management uh, is appropriately trained and that the right training um, uh, you know periodicity or, or how frequently that training occurs is, is right and uh, whether all the rules uh, and safeguards are are in place so we're we've worked with the RNC on all of that and so the recommendations in this report are actually pretty similar to those of the audit that we completed because again these things are happening roughly at the same time there is one new thing that we did introduce in this uh, report however that I, I think is pretty important and uh, and that is that in this case you the 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 individuals that access the database did so and um, they didn't uh, right now if, if you're at the RNC um, and a, a police officer can go up to a clerk and say can you run this search for me and the, the clerk will run the search and produce uh, give the officer the results and so what we're saying that all should be logged so why the search is done needs to be logged in writing. So people see this on TV sometimes, right? And, and not just, you know, TV shows about here or elsewhere, whether it's Republican Doyle or, or Law and Order. You know, someone will call up someone and say, you know, can you run a license plate check for me, right? And, you know, that's not supposed to happen, right? You're not supposed to just run a license plate check. So the safeguard that we're, that we see, and I'm not suggesting that this is the kind of thing that goes on here on a normal basis because it is a privacy breach and there's other reasons why you shouldn't do that um, but we're saying every every time you run a search like that there should be a log and you write down while well, you could do it so you know months later when you're investigating it and someone says well why did you search for this information then there's a there's a written reason right they can't say oh well uh, you know a, a police officer asked me to to look for it well well who was it all oh, i can't remember you know we can't have that so everything needs to be logged so that's a novel recommendation in this report to the rnc you know you look across different provinces and territories they all have their own processes and legislation in place i from from where i said in my opinion the unraveling of the pcs was you know in part bill c69 and that was you know the frivolous and vexation vexatious requests and all up and down the line. I think we look at our legislation as pretty robust. Are there any changes made in other provinces, you know, in conversation with your colleagues, where we can tighten things up on top of the recommendation you just made there specific to the RNC? Uh, I think, so first of all, I absolutely agree with you. The legislation we have now, ATIPA 2015, is, you know, essentially the best in the country and one of the best in the world from an access to information perspective. There's definitely some work that we can do on the privacy side uh, that, um, so for example, uh, privacy impact assessments are things that, um, you know, need to be done by uh, government departments and agencies, uh, boards and commissions uh, that. Uh, and they need to consult us on some of them, but we have recommendations in, into the government that we might want to broaden the range of them that need to come over for us to consult on before. And there's some other, we've, during the statutory review that launched in, in 2020, we made a number of other recommendations about privacy that, um, that we think need to be addressed. One 
big one that is a real hot topic these days is AI. So we recommended to the government that anyone that is any department or public body that is using AI, uh, they need to, at the very least, let us know here at the OIPC, uh, and they should do it with what's called an algorithmic assessment, so something similar to a privacy impact assessment, and consult us on it. So this is pretty light first step toward regulating AI in the public sector, but but really we really think that, that this could have pretty sweeping consequences and it could move awful fast. So so that's one area that we've identified as a priority for change on the privacy side. Uh, and there's a few others, but um, you know, like I say, our uh, when we talk about ATIP 2015, one of the things that we always uh, uh, say is that uh, you know it really is an excellent act on the access information side, and if anything, we should be protecting that side of things. Uh, last one before I let you go. So I know you must be keeping an eye to these types of related matters in other first world democratic countries because these the very similar overlaps, whether it be the advent of technology and this pace, the space, pardon me, the pace at which it grows and expands. Are you looking at what's happening in, in the UK? I mean, this uh, online safety bill, Talk about Big Brother. Now, I know you can't hardly walk uh, one footstep in the city of London without being on a camera somewhere, but when we see what governments are doing elsewhere and basically enhance surveillance like everyone's the CIA all of a sudden, do you look at those things and incorporate that in conversations with your colleagues here? Because being prepared to get out in front of stuff is much better for my privacy and to ensure that government is on the right track versus trying to react after the fact. Hopefully that question makes sense. Absolutely. We talk about, we look at what's going on in the world, uh, in the broader world all the time, and we talk to our colleagues across the country all the time. Uh, Sean Murray, who works here in my office, is going off to the Global Privacy Assembly, which is meeting in uh, in Bermuda this year in, in October. I'm meeting with my colleagues in Quebec City in early October. We will have a couple of resolutions coming out of uh, of that, and uh, and the plan is, and so I won't you know I won't steal our own thunder, but one of them is related to a surveillance topic. So we're very concerned about all of that. Uh, I am generally concerned about the uh, increasing use of surveillance broadly. Commissioners have issued a joint statement on the use of a surveillance to collect biometric information. So here we're talking about things like facial recognition, but also other forms of biometric collecting uh, data about, let's say, you know, heat signatures or you know how you how you walk. So there are the technology exists to gather all of that information and uh, and to store it in all sorts of ways, and uh, and this stuff is becoming cheaper and easier to set up. So, you know, we are very aware. And, uh, of these things, and we are issuing joint statements. You know, I'd be very happy to come back and talk to you in October after we have these meetings uh, to talk to you about the kind of joint statements that we have signed on to with, uh, with our colleagues across Canada and around the world. I look forward to that, and I only brought it up because you mentioned AI, because some of the concerns with this online safety bill in the UK is very base AI applications to all sorts of ways to assess who you are, where you are, recognize me by my gait. I mean, mm-hmm. it's all bad enough. Uh, it's good to have you on the show, Michael. Thanks for the time. Good to talk to you, Patty. Take have care. a great day. Uh, that's Michael Harvey. He's the province's information and privacy commissioner. Time for the news. When we come back, Rob, you're in the queue to talk about policing and the drug issue. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Rob. You're on the air. 
Up of the morning to you, Patty. Hope you had a good weekend. Not bad. Hope you did too. What's on your mind this morning? Yes. Okay, so, you know, lost in this conversation with all the, the drugs and everything like that, and yes, it's a shame, and, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to know that there's all this help out there and that, but we hear nothing about the police board and how they're trying to control it because that's where you got to nip it in the bud. Like, you know, having all these centres and everything like that is, is, is grand for everybody to get some help when they need it, but it's, that's, that's the end game part of it. It's got to be stopped at the, at the front part of it. And I know the police force is, you know, strapped to the hilt, but there, there's got to be something more done to stop the drugs from coming in. We're an island, so there's only a few ports where they can actually bring them in. Sure. And I mean, we see lots of confiscations and generally, unfortunately, they also include a lot of guns these days when we had to see the drug seizures. Look, I get what you're what you're saying, but let's just put it out to some of the other major ports here in the country. You know, like Port of Montreal. It's just one port, but it's the hub of cocaine for North America. So how you actually stop it? Because what we do know is that they're clever and they are relentless. For every bit we seize, there's another, let's just say we seize uh, a kilogram, there's 10 that got through. So how you do that in the big ports is a different question than here. Because you're right, there's only a couple of ways to get here is by sea or by air. Pretty much, right? So how you control at the ports and the type of processes in place to ensure all the containers are inspected and all the trucks are inspected, I don't know how aggressive they are. I know they do plenty of. The cops know, know, more way about, know way more about what's going on than I think we give them credit for. But that's fair. The only thing I will say to it is that's the approach that's been taken in North America for a long, long time. And the unfortunate reality is after trillions of dollars spent, it hasn't changed anything. If anything, it's worse. More drugs, more people hooked on drugs, more people dying from drugs, more organized crime involvement in drugs. So there's something inside of that that means it's simply not working. Yes, no, I, I agree with you there, but that's that's where it's got to change. So like you just said the proper word, they're relentless. You know, these, these drug lords and, and gangs and stuff like that, they're relentless at bringing their drugs in. Well, then we have to get relentless. The government has to set up better systems, give more resources to the officers who are, are, are controlling or, you know, trying to control whatever they can. You know, these little seizures, like you said, you know, one comes in, 10 come or we receive one, 10 comes in. Um, we got to be relentless on this and that's where you got to nip it in the bud is 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 getting the folks that are bringing it in and who are dealing the drugs yes you got your midterm you got your you know long guys it's i know it works as a system um but um you got to start and and just go through the ranks and you know just be relentless as a police officer and systems, get these gun and, gun and gang task force in and bolster them up even more. We've even heard from the criminals, <laughs> the cartels of the world and the like, and they've got an actual strategy. They're willing to misdirect law enforcement. They'll cough up some to get a sneak through elsewhere. That's where the whole creativity and the cleverness and the relentlessness uh, plays a role here. I'm not going to dispute your point that if we did more to keep the drugs out, less people would be on drugs because the math is the math, right? Uh, the other problem there is that you can have a bunch of different components that, as a standard, 
standalone ingredient, they're not illegal, but when combined, they are, which makes it tricky as well, right? Like, you try to make meth. You don't... the. All of the different components by themselves aren't illegal, but when combined, they, com- they make up a, a lethal drug. So there's a couple of complexities that are part of that conversation, I guess. Yes. You know, so like, is it being made here on the island? You know, Some like of it these- is. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, it absolutely is. For sure. So, so and that's what they got to try tracking down is where these places are, who's controlling it. And I know that it's never going to be controlled completely. I, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, living in Santa's Village or anything like that. But, um, you know, but there could be a big drop in control if our police forces were given the proper resources and manpower to investigate and, you know, and bring these criminals to justice. Like, bring them in and don't let them out with a slap on the hand with a little bit of bail. You know, like, build a prison out in Kelly's Island and leave them there. Yeah, I mean, the overcrowding in prison, I think, probably is part of that bail-related conversation. We're told that some some neighborhood, 60% of the people at Her Majesty's have never seen their day in court. So there's a lot to that as usual. Uh, Rob, I appreciate the time this morning. Would you like to say anything else? Nope, that's it, my buddies. You have a good day. You too. All the best. Okay, bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, I, I guess that's the vein of the criminal justice component of drugs. And by drugs, we mean the importation, distribution, sale of all of those things associated with it. But again, when we get to the end user, the consumer, the conversation changes somewhat. You know, because without question, no matter who you are, what party you support or what politician you think is on the right track, nobody but nobody is in support of the organized criminal component of drugs. Of course not. Trafficking drugs is extremely dangerous, has a huge impact on all of us. It's how we deal with those who end up with drugs in their hands and then in their system. Let's take a break. When we come back, Kelly's in the queue. She wants to respond to Jackie's call. And if I remember correctly, Dave, I mean, Jackie's the lady looking to start a conversation about drugs with someone who she suspects okay kelly right after this don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two good morning kelly Percy. you're on the air oh good morning how are you doing okay how about you i'm good thank you um i just i guess i'm calling in regards to the caller who was who was kind of wondering how to go about asking a family member or friend about the drug drug use and i wanted just to say that it's really important the words that you use when you're talking about someone with substance abuse issues or if you suspect they got substance abuse issues um i've done the um i've done uh, opiate response training now both through uh, st john ambulance which is free and also the red cross which is online for free and um they kind of they train you in using the proper terms basically and um, like, for example, some of the terms you might think of like a former addict would be, you know, a person in recovery or long term recovery or, you know, someone's a drunk. Instead of saying that, say people who misuses alcohol or um, engages in unhealthy or hazardous alcohol use. Like the, the words that you use is so important um, because it will it will make someone either alcoholic or you know um, if you if you call them an alcoholic or a drunk they're going to shut down they're not going to ask answer any of your questions and they're not going to be open to any help at all help at all so just kind of uh, just be careful with the the uh, the words that you use or even go online and get the training um, from St John Amlins or 
Red Cross, which is free. And once you do the training, they'll also send you naloxone kits. Um, so that you know you have that knowledge and you also ha- you can help physically if you see someone overdosing before we get into the critically important point you're making about using the proper words and terminology why did you decide to take those two courses um i've, I've had a lot of family members and a lot of people that i love with substance abuse issues and i thought and i um, I did the education kind of on my own. I took the I took the training, um, but I, I thought I knew a lot about uh, addiction. And but I used to say, oh, you know, so and so is clean, or so and so is uh, was an addict, not an addict anymore. And and I was kind of once I took the training, I was kind of ashamed about the words I used um, in front of my loved ones. I thought I was doing great, but. I, I just I realize now that you know there's such better words to use. To, they they already don't feel human, or they already feel stigmatized. So by taking the time out to learn the proper terms and actually treating them like a human being, and using the proper terms, it just makes them feel good, and they're more open to help. That makes sense. If the yeah. initial conversation feels like you're being attacked or people are purposefully using derogatory words, then who wants to cooperate or engage in that conversation? Because you might know yeah. in your own mind that you're struggling, but as soon as you're accused of being less than or second yeah. class, then of course that's the end of it. And you know what? You don't even realize that they're derogatory words. Like, you know, um, you're going to become an addict. Are you an addict? Like, you know, using words like that. I mean, you don't realize that they are harmful because everybody uses them. I use them all the time, right? But when you realize that there's such better words to use, um, people are going to be more open to asking for help or even answering your questions honestly because they feel hey if they're using the right terms and took the time to get the training to use the right terms when they're talking to me then obviously they care and they want to help because what we're all trying to achieve here if people are involved in these conversations is you're just looking for a positive outcome so if there's tools and tips and techniques to get to that end then i guess that would be helpful kelly have you had the opportunity or the need to utilize your training with a friend or a loved one uh you know what i i never but i was i was driving probably about a month ago and i saw a lady at a, at a she was near a stoplight and she was kind of nodding off um it was like something you would see on the videos like i've never seen anyone kind of standing up nodding off you know like she was bent over she was leaning back and I was I was I felt so bad for her and her family because it was at a stoplight and there was cars stopped and they were looking at her and watching her. I was thinking, Jesus, this is someone's oh sorry, this is someone's daughter, mother, sister, someone, somebody. You know, there's two words that you can use: somebody, someone, right? So I went where I was going, but I was thinking, oh my God, I got to got to go back and just see if she needs a ride or needs help. I haven't had to use it. Um, the kit, but it was that day that kind of made me think, okay, I need to have one in my vehicle now and one at home, um, and just to, just to have it and and use it if I had to. Because it's getting to that point now, right? Yeah, f- fair enough. Yeah. Uh, it really feels like it anyway. I thankfully live in a pretty sleepy little neighborhood, but one of the notorious or 
neighborhoods that are brought to question oftentimes in the public, social media, and here on this program. Just for the sake of it, I had a very quiet, unannounced little walk around through it. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I could not believe what I was seeing. And this was the middle of the afternoon, right? We're not yeah. talking about 2 o'clock in the morning and all those times of day when we think all these bad things happen. It was the middle of the day. And it was not only eye-opening, it was heartbreaking. It really, absolutely. I mean, look at it as somebody, someone. That's all you need to look at. Like when you see someone, somebody loves them dearly. And I'm, I'm pretty sure if you really look behind the history, it's, you know, uh, undiagnosed ADHD, un, um, undiagnosed mental issues, mental health issues, sorry, as a child, right? There's always someone got a story. And people also, when you think about the naloxone kits, I mean, you think of, I always thought it was going to be like an EpiPen. It's not, it's syringes, mm-hmm. it's needles, Yeah, it's right? an injection, yeah. So, yeah, so they almost got to be comfortable with using a needle, but I guess you would be in that situation but through i think it was the red cross um there's actually a nose nose one that you just put it in their nostrils and you it's like a nasal spray basically yeah there's questions as to whether or not that's as effective as the injection and the only difference between an epipen and the injection in the naloxone kit is the plunger because the epipen is in essence a needle but you don't need to do anything just jab it down yeah 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 uh kelly i'm glad you called Uh, would you like to say anything else this morning uh, no, just when you see someone struggling, just try to help no matter who they are. Don't think of them as, a, you know, someone less than you. There's somebody, someone. That's all you need to think. Yeah. Remember, somebody, someone. And be sure it's not forcing help on them. It's asking if they need. Maybe that's the approach also yeah. in using the right words. Kelly, thanks yeah. for your time this morning. Oh, and one more thing. Sure. So sorry. Don't just consider it as like a low-income neighborhood. Oh, my God, problem. no. It is absolutely everywhere. You know, you just um, it's just behind closed doors, and some people may be easier to hide their issues and problems. But, um, you know, just, yeah, somebody, someone practice that i want everybody to practice that somebody someone thanks kelly thank you take care bye-bye you too bye all right and look again tomorrow's another new day new show and the topics we can spread them around as you see fit interesting question posed on twitter before we run out of time this morning and this account says one of the questions i never hear asked is why is the drug problem getting worse that's a good question I don't think there's a short answer to it, but one of the biggest issues now is not only the numbers of people using, but the drugs themselves are worse. That's one distinct difference that we see. The cocaine supply of 20 years ago is not the cocaine supply of today. The numbers of people using and have access to things like heroin and crystal meth and all those things, that's just not what it looked like somewhat but now of course you can hear tales of rock and roll stars in the 70s and 80s with the heroin addictions what have you but it's what the drugs are like the severity of them the synthetic components of them the presence of the new presence so to speak of fentanyl just it makes the drugs worse so it might be a factor of that because some of these additives fentanyl are much more intoxicating and addictive so i think one of the issues is simply the drugs are worse
Now, there's lots of issues inside of that massive question, but I think we start with the fact that the drugs are absolutely not what they once were. All right, uh, that's the last check-in on the Twitter box this morning. Our email address, lots of good stuff in there today. If you haven't heard back, I'm doing my best to plow through it. An guesstimate of 500 emails since I last spoke to you on Friday, so it's a bit of a task. All right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.